0: A better way to do this Let me show you a better
1: way
2: You don't have to be Another
1: face in the crowd Well hi folks,
3: this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't Today... Is June the 2nd, 2023. It is Friday. That means it is time for an Expert Council Q&A show of the week. i got some folks you haven't heard from very much recently today for you. One group you always hear from every week, except if it's a really short week, is Ron Paul and his team with the Liberty Highlights. Today we have Dr. Paul talking about how Congress is literally stepping on the National Bankruptcy Accelerator. I completely agree. Dan McAdams over there will talk about the danger of escalations in the Russia-Ukraine war. And it is a very dangerous situation. And all we have to do is stop being stupid. But I don't think we're capable of that. And when I say we, I mean our government. Chris Rossini says, why people with power keep multiplying problems. I'll be interested in hearing that one myself. I bet I have something to add to it. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about dealing with something called genetic familial hypercholesterolemia. That's a big word, hypercholesterolemia. We'll hear all about it, why it's not the problem some people say it is, but why it can be a problem and what to do about it. Jeff Lawton will talk about controlling problem erosion areas. Professor C.J. Kilmer will talk about the origin of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater in U.S. constitutional law. And I will talk about the absolute critical importance of free speech, and that will go along with our quote of the week this week, which is from Thomas Jefferson. He said, The liberty of speaking and writing guards our other liberties. And if you want to know how much tyranny you're really dealing with, my view is the more you're not allowed to say, the more tyranny you're dealing with, which means we're dealing with an awful lot of tyranny right now. But I want to talk about how you can always tell when the people doing the censoring know that they're censoring truth, especially in the modern day. I don't think this was really the problem in particular in the days of Thomas Jefferson. Free speech has always been important. It was important before Jefferson, it was important after him, it will be important after me and after you. But that's not what I mean. There wasn't the ability. To execute coordinated censorship like there is today. Because print media was the primary way that people got their information. It's much harder to censor somebody's ability to publish a a, a newspaper and distribute it than it is to censor electronic information. And so people relied a lot more on print media back at the time. So today this is a larger problem. By, By enabling greater reach with technology, eventually we enabled greater censorship via technology. And I'm going to talk today in my Anchor segment about why it is so important that we continuously fight back against this. It is the essential liberty from which all other liberty springs in a society. All of that in just a second before we get into it. just want to remind you guys, unless something's changed, because I pre-recorded this week's episode, there are still tickets that should be on sale for the 15-year anniversary party if they actually sold out on the first day. I apologize for that incorrect information, but I'm trying to get ahead this week. I'm going to be spending time with my nieces tomorrow, which for you is yesterday. uh, And I'm going to be taking Friday off as well. So, short week, had to cram a bunch of it in. So, uh, just wanted to throw that out there. With that, I also do want to remind you guys that... uh, There really is a a wonderful program that John Bush has put together. It's called the Exit and Build Accelerator. You can find out more about it in a post at the Survival Podcast blog. And there will be a link to that in today's show notes uh, for episode 3313. And the reason I'm making sure I include that is it expires today. It's kind of a program that, you know, kind of everybody travels through it at the same speed. So uh, they're closing sales on it today. I didn't find out about it until Wednesday. So... Uh, with that being the case, it's only had a couple of days to let you know about it, figure i would slip it in here, uh, and this episode should go out nice and early on this Friday, so hopefully if you're hanging it now and you didn't know about it, you still have time. because it's a pretty cool program for people that do want to get up and out of the cities and out to the countryside. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. Leading off the pack as usual, the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights in order. Dr. Paul. Dan McAdams
4: and Chris Rossini the deficit is definitely going to continue to go up even if even if you had six months or a year reprieve it's built into the system there's been no significant philosophic changes there's still a warfare state there's still a welfare state and there's still deficit financing and there's a lot of rhetoric that says they're against it but i can remember a long time ago they talked about the same way. i remember barry goldwater talking about why the debt shouldn't continue could be troublesome well it's troublesome and uh, this, this is this is something that uh, will not change gradually. And as I've always said, it will change because it cannot be maintained. You can't have wealth uh, produced out of a printing press forever. You can deceive the people. You can fool the people the telling them there's value in your currency. Uh, but the currency eventually goes to pot. Goes to yeah, it does go to pot. <laughs> it goes. to... It goes down in value, and that's the tax, and that's what's happening now. This idea that inflation is over and the economy is booming again, uh, there are some positive signs, but I'll tell you what, they haven't changed policy, the monetary system is the same, and it's been steadily eroded, especially since 1971, and there's no resemblance to what the founders intended for us to have that would restrain the growth of tyranny over a republic.
2: This is from... Washington Post. Drones hit Moscow, shocking Russian capital after new missile attack on Kiev. The claim is, is it's a tit for tat. The missile attack on Kiev apparently, according to the Russians, hit the military intelligence headquarters in Kiev. It's significant because it's the first time Ukrainian drones have gone into Moscow in civilian areas. You know that one drone tried to hit the Kremlin unsuccessfully. Sobanyin, who's the mayor of Moscow, said drones struck two residential buildings in Moscow, causing minor damage. So it was hardly shock and awe, Dr. Paul, like we saw in Iraq when we completely leveled Baghdad, but there is definitely a psychological component for for the citizens of Moscow that uh, even though these didn't hit and do damage, and most of them appear to have been shot out of the sky, nevertheless, if we were in the same boat, we would be feeling uh, uh, unsure and, and, and worried. There was really no military significance to what they did, but it did have... A psychological component but the two things that are important about this the U.S. has claimed to be pretty explicit with with Kiev that we don't want these weapons that we're giving you to attack inside Russia because that is too escalatory yes you can use them to defend yourself as you see fit in your country but don't go outside of Ukraine and hit Russia so either one of two things must have happened either the US expressed itself very clearly to Kiev saying do not hit Moscow with the weapons that you're getting from outside, and Kiev said we don't care, we'll do what we want. Or the U.S. is tacitly approving of these attacks inside Moscow. Either two are not good news for anyone with a sane head, because if Kiev is not listening and the U.S. is not saying okay, if you keep doing it, no more weapons, as we would with other allies, that's one thing. But also if the U.S. is pretending to play a uh, put a blind eye on it that is a real escalation that it's uh, certainly people who are worried about World War three should stand up and take pay attention
0: one of mankind's uh, big challenges each individual's challenges is understanding how little we actually know Uh, that is the big problem with government you know and that's why the US Constitution is imperfect as it was It was meant to keep government small. It failed. Unfortunately, we now have the biggest government ever in the history of the world, so it obviously failed. But they tried, and you can see just the hubris of people in power. They don't understand what they don't know. And you know, they think that they're going to fix something with a regulation, uh, and they create new problems, two new problems for every new regulation, and they, they just keep multiplying regulations and multiplying problems. Same thing with foreign policy. They think that they could go across the world and remake a country, they fail miserably, but they just move on to another country and fail again. And again, and in our case, with our empire, the failures are piling up. It's the same with central bankers. They try. They believe that they can price fix and counterfeit money to better society, uh, if that's their goal. Who knows? But in any case, they make society much worse because they do not understand all of the subsequent consequences that are produced by their interventions. COVID was another example. They just multiplied problems with every single move that they made, and you know, ultimately you reached a point where the Soviets reached where you. you're you're totally frozen there is nothing you can do to make anything better and that's why ultimately we have to get back to free markets and sound money they are superior they are not problem-free there are going to be problems in free markets with sound money. The only difference is the problems will be more localized. It won't be one person in the WHO that's going to ruin the entire world or one person in the Federal Reserve that's going to ruin the entire country. They will be re- localized, and there will be problems that have to be resolved more locally rather than this central planning fantasy. And that's what we, uh, you know, we hope to push those ideas to get us to that point.
3: I have a little bit to add. ...to each one of those segments. I'm going to start with Dr. Paul. <sighs> yeah, the, uh, the, the Congress is stepping on the, the National Bankruptcy Accelerator... ...is the way to look at what he said. And here's what I have to tell you. I don't care what happens, that's not going to change. Here, Dr. Paul, he's, he's referencing all the way back to Barry Goldwater. Most of you weren't even born when Barry Goldwater was a thing in this audience. I know some of y'all are older than me. You're the exception... The average person who listens to this show is between 25 and 35 years old. You weren't in diapers when Barry Goldwater was the thing. Okay? And it's still going on. And it's still going on. And it's still going on. And it will continue. And here's, here's the bigger reason as to why. It's not just because the congressional ass clowns keep spending money. It's because the system is designed to work this way. A system that is supposed to have a stated goal of 2% per annum inflation has to have an expanding debt if the inflation is based on the monetary supply, and the monetary supply itself is death. right? Debt, right? I said death, but it kind of is, eventually, national economic death. They will have to rebase the currency at some point. There is no way around this. Um, everybody talks about the debt, but the real number that people need to be looking at is un- Unfunded liabilities. Unfunded liabilities, you can find it at the National Debt Clock. And unfunded liabilities are bills we will have to pay. Non discretionary spending like Social Security and the debt and interest on the debt, etc. The things that the bills, think of it in your house, your mortgage, and your electric bill. You don't have, well, I guess your electric bill you have some discretion on, but whatever it is, got to pay it. And you can project out pretty well what it's going to be on a monthly basis by looking at the past. Well, we have unfunded liabilities of $187 trillion between now and the year 2055. This is not, well, maybe. this is The number, if anything, is low. It's low, 187 trillion and it grows every single second. I, I, I encourage you someday, if you've never done it, go to USdebtclock.org and for the unfunded liability, scroll down to like the, the last row of numbers that are, are moving on a ticker upward. It'll be on the bottom right-hand corner, right above where it says gold and precious metals. 187 trillion, 969 billion, 325 million, and counting. And I just watched it go up another million dollars since I started this. I'm not kidding. So that's a growing number. That's at any given second right now and it, it is now Friday and I recorded this on a Wednesday afternoon. It may conceivably be noticeably higher. You know, it might be 970 million after that 187 billion just in a couple days. Go check it out and see. So that's money we're never going to have. We know we have to print it. So what's the break point? Where does it break? Right now, the U.S. national debt stands at $31 trillion. The Congress just agreed to spend another $4 trillion that we do not have. Eh, It'll be all right. Don't worry about it. You know, sooner or later, we're going to have a real come-to-Jesus moment with this economic situation. And for people that have not prepared in any way, it's going to be even more painful than it will be for all of us, I'll just say that. Uh, Next up, you know... This idea of Ukraine hitting inside Russia, if you're just looking at it from a standpoint of, well, it's a war, and these two countries are fighting, and Russia's in their country, right? Okay, you have to understand something about psychology and what ends up happening in escalations of war. If you think about this, I I know this is an unpopular opinion, but Russia has used a tremendous amount of restraint in this conflict. Oh, they invaded Ukraine. Yes, they did into a region that's been in an active civil war for nine and a half years now that the TV never told you about. They just said, Russia, 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 or Ukrainian allies. again. Ukraine is not an ally. There's no official alliance with Ukraine, and I defy you to show me one. But Russia has operated almost, now in the very beginning they pushed further in and then pulled back, almost exclusively within the region that is in, 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 in contest And like 90% of the people that live there want nothing to do with being part of Ukraine, especially after the United States illegally overthrew an election in 2014 and installed our own puppet, i.e. Zelensky. Okay? That's what happened. And Russia has not bombed, you know, western Ukraine into the ground the way that they could have. They have used restraint, and Ukraine has used restraint, and it almost boggles the imagination. How does this work? War is about using force to settle a disagreement as expediently as possible. When you start invoking nuclear power, though, into this, and you've got a proxy war between the two largest nuclear powers in the world, restraint is required because the ultimate result of full use of force is untenable to either side. Nobody wins. And that's why there is this holding back by both sides. But the escalation is dangerous. And I can give you... I'll play a little bit of C.J. Kilmer here for you, okay? Pretend to be C.J. and invoke some history. During World War II, there was a point in time where... And I don't remember the exact mission, but it kind of everything went wrong. And, And the British, who were not at all unwilling to bomb civilian targets, like totally bombed the shit out of civilian targets in Berlin, and it was not intentional. And what ended up happening is Hitler flipped his shit and started bombing the shit out of residential areas and civilian areas in London. This actually hurt Germany. Because instead of focusing on military power, they were focusing on revenge. Now, you can say, well, Hitler was crazy. Look, all I'm saying is certain things that happen in escalation of war result in irrational return from the opposing side. And then you start on a pathway of escalation, which can be exceedingly dangerous with modern weaponry. It's the, you know, the, the F around and find out. Well, everybody's Fing around at about a four and a half to a five right now. But we can go from a four and a half to a five to a ten really, really quick and annihilate life on the planet as we know it if we're not careful. This is ridiculous, and the only thing needed for this conflict to end is for us to stop touching it. If we weren't touching it, the two sides would have came to a peace a long time ago. You may not like that, but it's true, and it would be better for Ukraine and better for Russia in the long term. We're not doing this for the benefit of Ukraine or Ukrainians. No. There are, I mean, literally thousands a week, Ukrainian males dying in this conflict that don't have to be. The country is being torn apart, and we don't... When I say we, I mean, am back to the oligarchs and the people in power and government. We don't care about that. We care about what we want. And in the end, what does this country want? And again, I'm back to oligarchs and and the elites and the bureaucracy... And, and the people in political power, they want more power and they want more money. That's what's driving the whole thing. And then that leads me right to Chris Mussini's thing. He said, Why people in power keep multiplying problems? You want the real answer? Because they can, and they can do so without paying a consequence for being wrong. Like a kid out of office, Jack. Well, first of all, that almost never happens. Second, when it does to a congressman or a senator, they go get a job making six, seven times the money as a lobbyist. How much of a punk? Or they go to work, you know, inside the corporate apparatus, or they go in a revolving door between bureaucracy positions and things like cabinet positions and stuff, and working for the corporatocracy and being lobbyists. There's no consequence to being wrong, and you have the power to do things. So, you know, there was an invocation there of the Constitution, as flawed as it is, because it failed. It was set up to control power. Here's the truth. As long as government has power, the government with the least amount of power will in time become the largest form of tyranny. Because its prosperity will then be taxed and used to grow the size of government. And any power that government doesn't have, it will use the power it does have to give to itself. And no piece of paper will ever change that. I know some of you don't like hearing that, but... You know what? I got... What is it, 230 years of history now? 220 years of history? 230 odd years of history behind us that says it's the way it is. So I could tell you Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are coming, but you should know better, right? Now let's hear about something totally different. Dr. Ken Berry on a position, uh, 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 um, an illness or a condition, I should say, called hypercholesterolemia. What is that? What do you do about it?
5: Hey, Jack Co. and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. It's great to be back with you guys. I'm answering a question today from Christopher. Uh, Christopher's got an update and then a question. He's been uh, doing keto, low, low glycemic diet. He's lost 32 pounds. That's the good news. Congratulations, Christopher. The bad news is he's been diagnosed with genetic hypercholesterolemia which is a a real medical condition in which your liver produces more LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol than the average human. Uh, He found out that his brother uh, has been trending up in cholesterol as well. This condition can run in families. Uh, Christopher's current lab work is total cholesterol uh, 512, LDL cholesterol 425, HDL 53 and triglycerides 62. So his HDL and triglycerides are great, but his total cholesterol and his LDL cholesterol are very, very high by modern medical standards. He spoke with a lipid specialist, he spoke with a dietitian, and they all obviously warned him that this is this is very dangerous and he needs to probably eat a plant-based, low-fat diet. Now, I've actually interviewed an expert in this area. His name is Dr. David Diamond. I've got two or three videos on my YouTube channel about familial or genetic hypercholesterolemia. It's not the high cholesterol and it's not the high LDL that, that makes this potentially dangerous. People with genetic hypercholesterolemia, also their blood is hypercoagulable, which means that it, it can make clots much easier. It can make inappropriate clots in places that there shouldn't be a clot easier. It's not because of the high cholesterol or the high LDL cholesterol. It's because of the way the, the genetic defect also changes the coagulation cascade in humans. So they, they're, it's easier for them to form clots, and it has nothing to do with the high LDL. Uh, Dr. David Diamond, spelled just like a diamond, you would wear on your ring. He has multiple videos about familial or genetic hypercholesterolemia on my YouTube channel and on other YouTube channels. Uh, Before you switch your diet, I would highly encourage you to watch Dr. David Diamond's videos, and that will put your mind at ease. He's a PhD researcher at the University of South Florida and has been studying lipid metabolism for over 20 years. So this guy is one of the leading authorities in the world on this, and he will set your mind at ease about the current diet. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time.
3: Good stuff from Ken. Next up, let's hear from Jeff Lawton, and uh, this is on an, uh, a particular area the person's dealing with that has a serious erosion issue, and what can be done about
1: it. Hi, Jeff here, coming to you from Jordan in the Dead Sea Valley. Um, and. Uh, I've got a question uh, coming about um, a large amount of erosion on a half acre block, um, um, hill block, um, got a bit of a slope by the sands of it, and a lot of water coming over in big rains and running down the slope. Um, really, you need to make sure that is that pacified and um, swales with a large enough capacity to hold the water and then control the levels built Sill spillway so that you know exactly where the water's um overflowing so first off pacify it with um swales starting at the top Um, you can actually start at the lowest point on the highest boundary that will give you the longest highest swale and then put in maybe some depending where that lies in the landscape put in swales above and below, below that spaced at about um horizontally from the tallest your trees are going to grow on the swale so you're going to put trees on the swale bank and they're going to grow to a set height or you might want to prune them to a set height as it's only half an acre so horizontally project back from the height of the tree to the next swale uphill now that's um, to pacify the water you you could go another one in between but you want at least that you want that concentration as kind of a minimum because you've got water to control and soak in and you're not going to soak it all in if it's a large amount of water so you want to have a very controlled overflow point on each well which could be rocked and concreted between so it's like a rock riprap that's sort of stabilised with concrete infill uh, or it could be a little concrete slab Um, if you've got the climate it could be well grassed and mowed uh, but it's got to be stable. Uh, the, the overflow point is sta- has got to be stable. And the first steep section where the water flows over has got to be stable. And from there on in, you want to have it nicely planted downhill as the water moves only at right angle to contour. So you'll, you'll be able to sketch out the roadmap of where the water is going to run. And then it hits the next swale and pacifies again and then the next swell, and that'll have a good overflow. Each swell going to have a really good overflow, and you're controlling exactly where you want the water to overflow and exit at the bottom of the property. And it's like putting shock absorbers into the car or improving your shock absorbers from standard to gas shocks or something like that. It it, it, it just takes quite a lot of the inertia out of the water and and allows uh, a reasonable volume of it to soak in, And that makes it easier for you to grow trees on the swale, on the lower side of the, on the lower side of the swale, on the swale mound. And the root net helps the whole thing function and it just gets better and better over time.
3: There you go. Good stuff from Jeff, as always. Now we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. C.J. Kilmer is going to talk about the origin of a phrase. I would say just about anybody, you know, with an IQ over 80 has probably heard. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. It being a, com- a, a, a connotation that there are limits to the right of freedom of speech. If your, if your claim you know, causes harm, well, maybe we put a limit on it. We're hear really what CJ says about this, but I want to point something out that very seldom gets pointed out when, when this, this you know, phrase is brought up uh, to justify the censorship of speech. It is completely legal and morally right to yell fire in a crowded theater if there is in fact a fire in a crowded theater, at least the one that you're in when you're yelling fire, to warn people that it's actually happening. And I just want you to think about that, and that kind of primes my anchor segment, which will be on free speech. Uh, Before that, though, we have CJ, and then we have one more segment before we get to that.
6: Hey, this is CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm answering a question that is, what is the history behind the phrase, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater? And I think the listener is specifically um, asking, you know, in regard to the First Amendment and free speech and all that. So where that phrase entered into American constitutional law is in regard to a Supreme Court decision from 1919 called Schenck versus United States. And that was a case that came out of World War I, and in particular in regard to the violations of free speech that occurred during U.S. participation in World War I. And there were massive encroachments on free speech under the Sedition and Espionage Acts that were passed during the war. So this particular case had to do with a socialist activist who was giving out like leaflets in some busy public venue. And this is a case where I absolutely agree with socialists. The leaflets were saying that the military draft for Americans for World War I was immoral and unconstitutional. And an activist giving out these pamphlets was arrested and charged under the Espionage Act of 1917. And ultimately, it went to the Supreme Court, and a majority on the court ruled in favor of the socialist activist being, you know, convicted and sentenced and all that despite the First Amendment. And the court's decision was written by the famous Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And he basically said That in wartime, and really kind of in any major emergency type situation, the Bill of Rights kind of goes on hold, sort of gets suspended, and things that would normally be fully protected by the Bill of Rights, like free speech, suddenly are no longer fully protected. This, of course, is in line with the progressive view of rights, which is that your rights are not these natural, eternal, unchanging things, but that instead your rights are kind of like whatever it's convenient for the government to allow you to have, given the circumstances at the moment. And so the part of Holmes's opinion that uses this phrase, he says, quote, The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree." And while some aspects of this decision were rolled back a bit by some subsequent court decisions, this overall idea that there are these limits to things like free speech has largely endured, both in the courts and in kind of popular conceptions and politicians' lingo. So yes, to give out pamphlets against a military draft might be protected First Amendment activity during mellow peacetime, but during war it is dangerous, and can bring about substantive evils. Now, one thing I always point out in regard to this decision is that Holmes said specifically falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. So, yeah, if you knowingly falsely do something like that, you've done something wrong, and that's a type of speech that perhaps many or even most people would agree should not be legally protected. However, What if you shout fire in a crowded theater because there actually is a fire? Well, it still might cause some, you know, chaos and, you know, crowds running for the exits or whatever. But would anybody say that you were wrong to shout fire if there actually was a fire? And so I would say that in this case, the socialists giving out these pamphlets were not shouting fire falsely. They were making sound moral and legal arguments against the military draft and that because their arguments were sound and were not lies you know you could disagree with the points of view expressed in uh, these pamphlets they were giving out but these were not lies these were not false they had you know a reasonable argument against the military draft and so to me If you're speaking out against something the government is doing that you have a solid argument is unconstitutional, immoral, illegal, or some combination thereof, you are not falsely shouting fire by pointing it out to your fellow citizens. You are shouting fire when there actually is a fire, or at the very least, there's good reason for you to believe that there really is a fire. And so, to me, this is just, you know, faulty logic and bad constitutional law. And Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., you know, is often held up as this super-respected Supreme Court justice and whatever, but he made a lot of evil, unconstitutional decisions, many of which got thrown out by subsequent courts. And another one I'll mention, aside from this one, and there were a few others related to World War I and free speech that he helped, you know, to back up the Wilson administration's wartime violations of the Bill of Rights. But another one I'll mention that he wrote was Buck versus Bell. And this was a bit later. I think it was in 1927. And in Buck versus Bell, Justice Holmes wrote an opinion validating constitutionally uh, eugenics law. I think it was in the state of Virginia. And basically, Holmes said that it was absolutely valid and constitutionally just fine for a state... To do something like, for example, forcibly sterilizing someone against their will based on some eugenics law. So that's the kind of guy that Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was. Not a big fan of anything resembling individual natural rights.
3: So TJ, uh, CJ did indeed make the same point I did. That it's completely and totally right, moral and legal, T.L. fire in a theater that it is in fact on fire. And I do believe that the draft is unconstitutional. And I do believe the draft is immoral. And I also wanted to make one more point before we go on. And I'm not going to go deep in this topic because it fits so well with my, my anchor segment. But Oliver Wendell Holmes is proof that a complete and total dipshit, asshole, tyrant can at times say things that are inherently true and valuable. One of of Holmes' quotes that I actually love, in fact, in spite of the fact that I despise the man, is the right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins, which was also written into one of his Supreme Court opinions. I completely agree with that. It's just interesting to me that people in power, as I said earlier during the Ron Paul segment, Tend to make mistakes when there's no consequence to their being wrong and there's no alternative to not following along with what they say. Holmes knew the right way to handle that. I'm not harming anybody by expressing my political opinion, but you think it's okay to throw me in prison because, well, it just comes down to this. When you give people enough power, they pre- end up placing inevitably. Preference above principles. And that's why people that don't want power are generally the ones that stick to putting principles above preferences. There's a lot of things I would like to be a certain way in the world, but my principle is that liberty is more important than what I want. Would I survive in that belief if you gave me significant power? I would like to believe that I would. I know that I will never be tested. Because I so despise the concept of that type of power, I wouldn't take it if it was handed to me. And the real reality is, I'm not sure any of us could resist that temptation. You know, expert council member Nick Ferguson put it this way one time. He said, I wouldn't be president. You could pay me a million dollars a year to do it and guarantee me two terms in office, eight years. I wouldn't want to be president. Because a president can't really do shit. But I'd be king. I could get some shit done if I was king, even just for a couple years. Thing is, I'm not so sure that's true. I got his point. He was making a joke. We were all drinking, so I'm not picking on Nick. But I think the reality is that the lure of the ring of power, indeed, is way too powerful for anyone to actually put the ring on. With that, before we go into my thoughts on free speech and how imperative it is to liberty... Let's hear from Josh, the Renegade Butcher, on Cooking Steak. Hey there, Jack and TSP. Just wanted to
7: throw out another question here, or an answer for the expert council. I've been getting a lot of questions lately from new followers on Noster, as well as some folks in my Telegram communities, asking about things like seasoning or cooking steaks properly, and how to actually manage to get it done for somebody who doesn't have a background in it, who doesn't really uh have much experience cooking um some frustrations with uh I don't know what to do beyond salt pepper garlic which is always good to begin with uh up to how do I cook a steak and not just ruin it because I always either overcook it or undercook it so to tackle first seasoning uh that's that's so open it just really depends it depends on your individual preferences i believe that Variety is the spice of life. No pun intended when I'm talking about seasonings and spices here. So I never want to have to eat the same steak twice. Now, granted, I often use the same seasoning blends myself because I found what I do enjoy. But I I like to rotate through a few different recipes. Salt, pepper, garlic is never a bad place to go. Um, Adding some herbs, like some aromatics such as uh, rosemary or thyme, um, is always a great way to go. I tend to like to use those more in a uh, a basting application myself later. I'll touch on that a little bit more in the cooking. However, there's nothing wrong with going with some Cajun seasoning now and then. Spice it up a little bit. Add something different. Try something different. Do a little bit of lemon pepper, you know. Now, if you're on a restricted diet, say, especially if you're dealing with uh, carnivore and you're eating primarily you know, beef or, or you know, just single cuts of meat, it can get a little bit boring. No matter how good it is, no matter how much we love it, it can get a little bit monotonous if you're eating stuff seasoned exactly the same way. There's nothing wrong with just a little bit of salt and it's going to be delicious, but try, some, uh, try something different. You know, don't be afraid to experiment because worst case scenario, you have one meal you didn't quite enjoy and you learn from it. That's the beauty of cooking. That's, uh, that's the journey. So as far as actually cooking a steak, I think the number one thing I can tell somebody is get an instant read meat thermometer and learn to use it. Now I will say, confess, I, I cook a lot of steaks that I don't temp. Because I've been doing it for a long time, and I, I can pretty much tell once you reach a certain point in your your cooking journey, you, you pretty much kind of can do it on autopilot. To me, it's not difficult to make a steak. A steak's actually one of the easiest things that you can cook. However, if you are trying to reach a specific doneness, it helps so much to actually know, to not guess. You can use every... Uh, you know, rule of thumb in the world or, or pushing on the right part of your hand and pushing on the steak that you want and you may still just be wrong. The thermometer doesn't lie as long as it's an accurate thermometer. What I will say is you're going to want to probably pull that steak a little bit before you think it's actually done. So if you're, say, shooting for 130 degrees internal temperature pull that thing at about 128 or 129 and then let the steak rest and because of that residual heat from the outside of the steak continuing to cook the interior of the steak because you know that heat's going to continue to creep in this is why you you think you pull the steak at the perfect time and it comes out a little bit overdone and dry so most of these thermometers are going to come with a scale that shows beef doneness if not it's really easy to look it up um, depending on where you're at you're going to want to go by fahrenheit or celsius obviously but I always encourage folks, if you've only ever had steak well done, please try it more towards the medium, medium rare, because a lot of, especially the good cuts of steak, you're, you're wasting so much flavor. And this is safe to eat. This, it's a scientific fact that it is safe to eat, that red in the middle of the steak is not blood. Uh, you're not going to die. You could, uh, you could eat just a flash-seared, pretty much raw steak and still be fine. It's more of a concern when you're talking about ground products uh, as far as contamination. So don't worry so much about it. Give that a shot. As far as cooking methods go, um, obviously we all love a good grilled steak, but I think it's also one of the more challenging types of cooking to master. For steak, for people starting on steak, I, I say get a good cast iron pan, a good solid cast iron skillet and learn to use it, learn to maintain that bad boy. I know Jack's a big fan of the uh, the carbon steel pans and whatnot, but a cast iron does retain heat a little bit better, and especially if you're using an electric stove or something that cycles, it it helps maintain that heat at uh, an, an even rate. It also allows you to get that thing roaring hot, like four or 500 degrees, and you want to use a high smoke point fat like beef tallow. The idea is you want to take a, a good steak like a ribeye or a porterhouse or whatever, and you're going to hot sear it a bit on each side you're going to get that thing nice and roaring hot ideally you have salted this thing and seasoned it a bit let it kind of sit on a rack in your refrigerator for at least 20 minutes helps dry the outside out it's called dry brining highly recommend doing that sear all sides of this steak and then as you flip it on the last side i mean be sure to sear that fat cap and everything as well as you flip it to that last side drop your temp to a medium low and then toss in some, some butter or some bacon grease, and I like to toss in then some sprigs of like rosemary or thyme or whatever fresh herbs you've got, and continue to baste that steak until it reaches the doneness that you want, uh, just basting it the whole time, either with a spoon and you know incorporating those herbs into that butter. You're basically making a hot compound butter as you work. Or uh, I'll take tongs and I'll just uh, utilize those, uh, those herbs, those aromatics, to basically baste those uh those oils back up onto the steak and then take it off rest it please rest it for at least 10 minutes if you're not resting your steaks no matter how you cook them you're doing it wrong uh, you gotta allow time for that uh that meat to cool down enough and actually reabsorb the juices that have flowed out and uh is, if you cut into a steak right away when you pull it off of off the heat you'll notice that all of the all of the juice just flows right out of it so Um, let's see another great method that if you haven't explored that at all, and I know Jack talks about this a lot is sous vide, sous vide style cooking. And, uh, that's a great foolproof way to get a perfect steak. Basically, uh, you could cook it for a long time and get it to a specific doneness, cool it back down and then just sear the outside. And it's, it's almost too easy. It's almost like cheating guys. Um, I would recommend you try that. And uh if you want to sear it with a torch or sear it on a, a hot grill or something like that, uh or in the cast iron, that's a great way to go. And uh, you can actually utilize a lot of cheaper, tougher cuts of meat and make them fork tender. So really worth checking into. And I know Jack's done full episodes on that as well. Uh And then, of course, last but not least, there's so many ways to do it. But, uh you know, just over an open flame like grilling, I think... You should at least have a good conception of what a well-done steak, you know, should look like before you attempt doing it on hard mode. I'm not saying don't throw a steak on your grill this weekend, and by all means, some guys just take pride in their barbecuing. So uh, I'm not I'm not telling you not to. But if you are just starting to learn how to cook a good steak, I think it's going to be harder for you. That said, I like to do very similar to the method I was talking about. However, while I'm say turning that steak while it's cooking on one side i'll actually take compound butter that i've made that's already got the herbs infused into it and i will leave that sitting on the steak to kind of cook in and a lot of times as some of that rolls off the edge you know you'll get that flame seared scorch which is kind of what I'm going for. I like to go for a good medium to a medium rare, so I'm going for kind of crispy on the outside and still mooing on the inside. That's uh, <laughs> that's uh my preference. So, hey guys, hopefully you got, uh, gathered something from this, and if you have any more questions or ideas, thoughts, or whatever when it comes to meat, seasonings, um, nostre, lightning integration, anything like that that I, I tend to cover or focus on, be sure to th- Send them off to Jack at the Survival Podcast for the TSPC Expert Council and for Josh the Renegade Butcher. All right, guys. Hope you have a great one. We'll catch up with you later.
3: And like I like to say, keep your knife sharp and your mind sharper. Take care, guys. Now, you know that's a topic that I want to talk about and expand upon, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, we've got the episode running long enough as it is. Let's get into my uh, my discussion. Now, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm saying this quote is from Thomas Jefferson. And I'm saying that because all of the pre-made you know quote graphics that I could find attributed the quote to Jefferson. I've always actually heard the quote is attributable to Thomas Paine. And so I don't think that really matters. It could be both of them said something very similar. They were uh, contemporaries and they did actually borrow from each other's language quite a bit but the quote itself is the liberties of speaking and writing guards our other liberties I think that there's probably never been a time in history where it's more true and more obvious at the same time that that liberty has been taken away and I I, I think that the problem is that we were all programmed in school to believe that if what happened to the socialist that was handing out leaflets during the time of World War One, didn't happen. Then free speech has not been infringed upon. And what I mean is, this guy—he printed his leaflets. He went out. He handed them out to people. People, most people that got one probably threw it away or yelled "commie" at him or something like. Because the the mindset of the American people at that time during the draft was a, a, a super majority of all in on the war. And it had a lot to do with the sinking of the Lusitania. And Germany had kind of painted themselves into a box with this unlimited warfare at sea that was untenable to the average American. And before that happened, make no mistake about it, the average American's opinion was, Europe is Europe's problem, we don't need to send our sons there to die. And it was definitely a propaganda campaign. And there were voices that said, Hey, Germany said... Don't put Americans on this ship, but it didn't matter in the end. The public opinion. So this guy wasn't going to have an impact. But they threw him in the clink. And the Supreme Court decided it was okay to throw him in a clink for handing out a pamphlet that expressed an opinion. And then Holmes, Justice Holmes, compared it to shouting fire in a crowded theater that actually could get people trampled to death when there was no fire. This is an opinion. Now, why did the establishment so vehemently attack this opinion? It's the same reason they do it today. They just do it by other means. When you know you're looking at tyranny is when an expression of the freedom of speech is both viciously attacked and is true. And I'm going to tell you something freedom of speech is in general not always but in general only attacked in other words most of the time when the speech that is being spoken is true i know that sounds crazy but think about it while the crazy shit was going on with covid and people like me were saying hey hydroxychloroquine along with zinc and uh, supplemental antibiotics for secondary infections is a valid treatment protocol for people with severe COVID, we were attacked. Ivermectin, the same way. But while this was going on, while YouTube was threatening to cancel my account for expressing my opinion, that was backed up by multiple medical doctors. And medical doctors were threatened with removal of their license for prescribing a medication that had been safely prescribed off-label for over 70 years. While all that was going on, there were lunatics with giant expanding YouTube channels claiming the Earth to be flat. Think about that. No one censored them. And they have huge... By the way, if you think... That it's only like three or four people dumb enough to believe the earth is flat. There are millions of idiots. And you, if you believe this, I am sorry. I don't care how mad it makes you. You are an idiot. You are a complete idiot. There are millions of idiots that believe the earth is flat and believe it's a government conspiracy to tell you that it's round. They don't know why that conspiracy would be a conspiracy. They just claim it. They, there are people, millions of them, that literally believe that Antarctica is a wall of ice, and if you keep going, there's a whole shitload more land and continents. Yes, they believe this. But they're not censored. Do you know why? Because they're clearly idiots. Because they're not speaking the truth. They are yelling fire in a theater without a fire. just ain't much of a crowd to step on top of each other. They're a bit disruptive and annoying, but they don't mess up the establishment's plan. However, when you speak the truth, when you say, hey, look, here's a computer with the son of a former vice president and current presidential candidate. It's got a bunch of pictures of, of, of him on it, banging hookers and talking about payments to the big guy from China. That You'll get more than 40 former intelligence agents. To write an opinion saying it's Russian disinformation when you damn well know it's true and you will cancel the accounts of legitimate, large, long-established press organizations like the New York Post in a coordinated attempt to silence the truth. You know, there's another quote I can add to this little segment. It sits in a meme as a pin post on my Facebook profile where I no longer spend my time and suggest you don't either. And it's by George R. R. Martin, who said, When you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar. You are only telling the world that you fear what he might say. Now here's what's happened. We've all been lured into a honeypot of censorship in modern social media. Most people, even if they say, well, I get my news from, insert news organization here, what they mean is when they read shit that people repost on social media, they prefer that source. They don't actually get their information from it. They get their information from the modern town square that is Facebook, that is YouTube, that is Twitter, etc. Here's the reality. This is why I did this segment today fits well with CJ's, but it also fits well with the very lead segment from, Dan McC- I'm sorry, from Chris Rossini and Ron Paul's group. Why people with power keep multiplying problems. Because they can. Because they can. Because if you give a person power, inevitably when they get to a certain point where they don't like the way things are going, if they have the power to change it even if it's wrong... They'll give in to the temptation and they'll do it. If we add money to that equation in coordination with the power of the state, you can't get anything but what we have. Which is anytime the establishment doesn't like what's being said, they reach out to their cronies and tell them to quash it. Now Elon came along and gave you a good head fake that you're going to have free speech on Twitter. Then he went, and just a few weeks ago, appointed... A literal member of the WEF, the World Economic Forum. This woman's a director of programs in the WEF. She's also an establishment media scumbag. She was pro-lockdown, pro-vaccine mandate, pro-mask mandate, and she is very highly pro-censorship. And he made her the CEO of a company he spent, what, 50, $50 billion to free? So, what you're back to is if you have a person or a small group of people that can make a decision about your right to speak and to be heard. We'll get to that in a second. It is only a matter of time before they abuse that power. So the only solution, and this is why I'm a fan of Noster, is to create a way, a medium by which nobody's in charge. If you don't want to read it, you don't have to look at it. If you don't want to hear it, you don't have to listen to it. But no one should be able to get in the way of your right to read it, see it or hear it. That's the key. And the only, I don't care about this whole I can't say fire crowd theater day. right? The only way to have freedom of speech is to have unabridged, completely untethered, total free speech and let people compete in the marketplace of ideas. I know this is very scary for some people, but did you know? that I can post something you don't like and you can just not look at it? Did you know that I can say or do or post something you don't like and as long as I don't actually break in your house, drag you out in a sleeper hold, knock you out, throw you in my trunk, drag you to my house, strap you down in a chair, put smelling salts underneath your nose and make you stay awake and pry your eyeballs open and force you to look at it that you didn't have to? Did you know that? That you could, in fact, ignore me? And that would be the greatest power you would have against me is to ignore me? Did you know that? I think most of you did. Because this is what's always missed in the right to free speech. This complete shitbag, and that's what she is, I'm sorry, that Elon Musk hired. She likes rhyming things because she's in marketing and advertising and wants to capitulate to people, you people know, that are the woke crowd because they have all the money. Yeah. And what she said literally lecturing lecturing Elon Musk, who then, 90 days later, gave her the job as Twitter CEO. Freedom of speech does not equal freedom of reach. That could be true, but it ain't in the way that she said it. What she means is, you could have a Twitter that lets Jack Spirko put whatever he wants on it, but it doesn't mean that his free speech is being conflicted with if you have to like individually go to his profile to see just because you followed him doesn't mean he's entitled to have you see his shit because trust me when you go to twitter and you click on following instead of for you the algorithm's still at play and plenty of people you follow you will never see that's limiting reach now where i agree with the statement is if you don't want to hear me, you don't listen to my podcast. If you're tired of me, you stop listening to my podcast. If you're fed up with me, you unsubscribe from my podcast and you forget Jacksbergu ever existed and go on with your life. So I have no right to force you to hear me or force you to consume my content, but I have every right for you to be able to if you want to. But more importantly, and this is the other side of free speech, you have a right to hear it, see it, read it if you wish to. You do. And this is why I encourage you to get involved with NOSTER and the Grow NOSTER initiative, because it is the only way, and I'm going to say it again, it is the only way that we can restore free speech is to leverage the technology that they're using against us in a way that is absolutely uncensorable. No one can do it except the consumer of the content. You can block any relay you want as an Oster user. You can block any account you want as an Oster user. You don't have to look at anything you don't want to. But no one's allowed to tell you what you're allowed to look at. Well, what if people use free speech for illegal things? Well, then the illegal things that actually would have a victim, like using it for coordination to steal from people... Oh, wait, that's what government does. Okay? But you get my point. That would be the crime... That would be the crime. Saying what you think is not a crime. And freedom of speech has never existed for the purpose of protecting speech that's popular. It's always been for the suppression of speech that is unpopular. The things people don't want to hear. The things that disrupt things. The things that upset people in power. That's the purpose. But we had a major change. Now, the most censured speech is popular. It's not popular in opinion. It's popular in people that want to hear it. In other words, maybe only 20% of the society agrees with it right now. But a hell of a lot of people are following the person saying it and want to hear it. There's all kinds of accounts out there on all these social media platforms. Guy's got four followers. He says whatever he wants. He's never been censored. He doesn't know what you're talking about. Even people like me, we put something out, it doesn't hit right in the algorithm. It's clearly something they'd censored before. They leave it alone. But once it starts taking off, once that view count goes to 6,000, 7,000, all of a sudden it's a problem. Too many people are listening. So popular can mean general consensus. People like to hear it. Or popular can just mean people want to hear it and find out. You have no choice going forward, folks. You're going to either be controlled or in control. This is why I've talked about things like AI. So If, you're, if your enemy has a weapon, you need an equal or better weapon. Right? So we need to learn to use AI so it's not used to just control us and the power behind it centralized behind a few elite people, which is what they want. That's why it's overhyped and undersold. Yeah. But it keeps going, doesn't it? If they're going to use economics and corrupted money as a weapon, that's why yours truly won't shut up about Bitcoin, because you need an incorruptible, uncensorable form of money. And that's what Bitcoin is, whether you want to accept it or not. Well, it's the same thing with free speech. If they are going to use technology to censor speech, then you need an equivalent weapon to your enemy, which is the ability to be to speak and to be heard by anybody that wants to hear you. And make no, do not be confused about this. It is as much, nay, it might be more, a violation to censor your right to hear something, even than to censor my right to say it. When you censor my right to say a thing, there's always somebody else that can say it. There's always somebody else that can point it out. I'm only one person. But when you start censoring the right of people to hear and consider competing ideas and arguments, then you've committed a true act of tyranny. So please, don't let this happen. Teach yourself these new technologies. Get involved and go listen to what you want to hear and say what you want to say. Because this is something no one ever argues with me about when I talk about it with the Second Amendment. I'll send the First Amendment. (laughs) The Second Amendment, when I say the number one way to preserve the Second Amendment is not just to say you believe in the right to keep and bear arms, but for you to keep and bear arms and teach other people to do the same. Every time you create a new gun owner, the Second Amendment gets reinforced. Why? Why? Because when they start talking about banning guns and confiscating weapons, etc, the person you've converted goes, "Wait a minute, that's me." As long as you don't own a gun, it's like when they talk about raising taxes on the rich and you don't know what the hell that means. You don't know, they mean you. That doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me. It's the same thing with freedom of speech. There's a reason it went first, because it is the guardian of all other liberties in the order of use. There's an old thing. The whole constitution sets up a government, which has failed us, by the way. But the first order of change is the ballot box. Okay? Have you ever heard this before? The ballot box. And it says please use them in this order. There's three elements to change in society. The ballot box, yeah. The soap box. That's the First Amendment speaking your mind. And the last, the ammo box. That's the second. First and second amendments of the Constitution are the guardians of liberty placed in order of appropriate use. If you can defend against tyranny through logic and reason and rhetoric, the spoken and the written word then you have an obligation to do that before you use violence. But when that fails, then you move to violence, and they know it too. And that's why they do it. They want you to be violent. Because then they can come up with more bullshit, like Oliver Wendell Holmes did, and saying, well, free speech doesn't really apply here because this person's doing a time of war. They're a dad-gone terrorist. Use the weapons at your disposal. Completely use up the soapbox before you even think about the ammo box. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I know I did. It was a lot of fun. hope you enjoyed this week, even though it was a short one. I think we had a lot of great conversations on the show. I'll catch you on Monday with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Just a real quick reminder, you can only support us by doing what? Your online shopping, beginning where, keyspaz.com. Take care, guys. Catch you Monday.
5: Are they going to bail you out or just
0: run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.